want to get out your message outline so that you can follow along. It is communion today, so it's a little different format. I'm sure you'll be able to figure it out. <clears throat> it's good to see everybody. It's been a long week for many of us, and uh, it is good to gather with your church family when you've been through a hard time. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are in Exodus chapter 18, and uh, it's a long chapter, so we'll read it kind of as we go through it, but let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we so desperately need it. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need the glory of the Lord. We need to hear your voice. We're assaulted every day with the disharmony of voices of this world, offering us counterfeit idols that promise much but deliver only deception and distortion. So we pray now, giving all of these competing voices clamoring for our attention, all of them seeking to derail us, would you speak with such clarity that it cuts through the noise that we would hear the very words of Jesus, bringing life and light into our hearts and our minds and our souls. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. We so desperately need him. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, help us see Jesus. Amen. How does a leader stay afloat in a busy and hectic life? Well, the answer could be found in the Plimsoll line. Samuel Plimsoll, I'm sure you all know of him. He was a 19th century British politician, and he was a social reformer, and his burning cause was the plight of merchant seamen. And in his day, hundreds, if not thousands, of sailors were lost at sea every year. And the reason is unscrupulous ship owners were overloading their ships. And so Plimsoll was relentless in his efforts to protect the sailors. In 1872, he published a paper entitled Our Seamen. And in it, he chronicled the problem of merchant shipping and offered a solution. And... Uh, A royal commission was appointed to study the issue, and finally, in 1876, British Parliament established the Merchant Shipping Act. It was a government bill that required all ships to have a line painted around their hulls. And here's how it worked. That ship was docked, and as freight was being loaded onto the ship, the vessel naturally, with the weight, would start to sink lower into the water. And when the water reached the Plimsoll line, as that line came to be called, then the loading had to stop. Because then the dockhands would know that that ship could carry no more weight without placing the crew and cargo in danger. So Plimsoll's argument is based on a very simple premise. A ship has limits to how big a load it can carry. As I read about that, leaders need a plimsoll line. Leaders are like ships. They, too, have limits as to how much they can carry. The Apostle Paul understood this. 
If you remember when he was in prison, uh, he wrote to Timothy and said, when you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. He recognized his limitations. He knew when it got cold, he needed a coat. And even though he's an apostle, he still needed to learn. He needed the books. It's a simple lesson, but it's easily violated. Leaders need to understand their limits, emotional, physical, relational, spiritual. And when leaders ignore those limits by stacking more and more responsibilities on the deck of their lives, they put themselves and they put their cause, they put their team, their group, their organization in jeopardy. Leaders who sail out of the harbor, ignoring their limitations, put themselves and everyone else at risk. What's more, all the people they lead are at risk. The cause, their champion, is at risk. So leaders need to draw a plimsoll line based on a thorough understanding of their own limitations. Exodus 18 records a pivotal moment in the life of Moses and a significant lesson about his capacities and his limitations. The nation of Israel has recently escaped from Egypt. When lo and behold, Jethro appears. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. And he can see that Moses is overloaded and he's in danger of capsizing. And the advice he gives forms the basis for some principles that are essential for effective living. So let's start by turning to Exodus chapter 18. We'll start at verse 1. Seeing that first and foremost, we have to know that God is faithful. God is faithful. That's the first blank there in your outline. We're starting at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So here we see a family reunion. We have the reuniting of Moses' family, and it highlights the significance of his son's names, along with several other phrases which point to God's faithfulness. It's a time of reflection for Moses. Moses has made his way back to Mount Sinai. Do you remember the last time Moses was here? It was all the way back in Exodus 3. The last time Moses was here, he was a shepherd, and he was taking care of sheep, and he met God at a burning bush. Well, He's still a shepherd, except now he's shepherding a nation. And the very realization of that must have impressed upon Moses how awesome God has been in his faithfulness to his promises. Moses didn't want to go to Egypt the last time he was at Mount Sinai, but now he's been there and back again. He's already gone through the fire. 
He's already brought the people of God out of Egypt, and he's brought them to the mountain of God. And certainly he's remembering all that God had done for Israel, as he writes down this account. He tells us, verse 1, that even Jethro, this Midianite priest, who was his father-in-law, has heard of all that God has done for Moses and for Israel in delivering them out of Egypt. And what I want to emphasize here, there are several things in these verses which emphasize God's faithfulness. Verse 1 recounts Jethro hearing all about what God had done for Moses and for Israel, how God brought them out of Egypt. And then look at the names, Gershom, verse 3. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom means sojourner. And Moses says, I named him Gershom because I was a sojourner. So just stop now and give thanks that your parents don't name you after their like most difficult life experiences. Okay, and for most of you, they just pick kind of regular names. Maybe even unique. But they didn't pick names like, you know, my life really stunk back here, you know, or something like that. But back in, in ancient times, they did that. They picked names that described experiences. And uh, you see that a lot, particularly in the Old Testament. Very common in Hebrew. And so I named him Gershom because I was a sojourner. Reminds us that Moses had been a wanderer, a pilgrim, a sojourner in the land of Egypt. But it also reminds us of God's faithfulness to him. And then his next son, Eliezer. This is the only time this son is mentioned in the Bible. And he's mentioned, verse 4, the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, Eliezer means God is help. That could be your name. God is help. It'd be pretty hard to say no every time, you know, mom asks you to do something. You know, God is help. <sighs> you know, I got to do it. <clears throat> But he says, I gave him that name because God spared me. God helped me. So God is my help. We don't know which incident he's referring to, but probably goes all the way back to the time when Moses had slain an Egyptian and Pharaoh had sought to kill him, and God in his mercy allowed Moses to escape. At any rate, Eliezer reminds us God has helped Moses. And then it records when they're at the mountain of God. They're at Mount Sinai. And God had promised all the way back in Exodus 2 that he was going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to worship at a mountain that he would show them. So we're seeing a fulfillment of God's promise here and a testimony to God's faithfulness. Moses, as he writes these things, is pondering all these proofs of God's faithfulness. Perhaps this is the first chance he's had to sort of catch his breath and reflect on everything that's happened. Ever since Israel left Egypt, it's been crisis after crisis after crisis. And finally, with this family reunion, he has the opportunity to look back and realize what God has done. It reminded me a little bit of Mary in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, we read, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Wouldn't you have loved to be there when Luke was interviewing Mary to find out all the details that none of the other Gospels tell us? 
he pauses and says that after all these things happened to Mary, after the birth of Jesus, she treasured them up and pondered them in her heart. And so here we have sort of a similar situation with Moses, where he gets finally to stop and think about everything that's happened to him. And it's pretty remarkable. And uh, he's remembering all that God has done for him and all that God has done for Israel. So in this very first section, we have an example of God's faithfulness recounted for us, even in this family reunion. Now, from the beginning of this series, if you can think all the way back to last September when we started, I've tried to make clear this book is all about God. It's starting to become more and more obvious. So another aspect of Exodus is not as important as this focus on God, but part of the message of Exodus is the story of God's work through Moses. In other words, an important feature of Exodus is all the lessons that God teaches us through the life of Moses. He's not a perfect man, but he is regarded sort of as the premier prophet. So part of the beauty of this book is we see the work of God in and through the life of a real human being. And through his experience, we're able to learn how we should live. The Apostle Paul tells us why we have all these stories. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things took place as examples for us. And he says they're both positive examples and negative examples. The point being, the faithfulness of God demands the same response from God's people. God's faithfulness should lead to our faithfulness. But not only should it lead to God's people being faithful, it should also lead to God's people being available. Being available, and that's the next blank there, starting at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Jethro's arrived. There's this bit of a family reunion. They spend time together. But it's all context for what comes next. And Moses seizes on this opportunity to share the story of what God has done uh, for Israel with his unbelieving pagan father-in-law. Jethro is a Midianite priest. And so he starts sharing everything that's done. And for those of you with family members who don't share your faith, you know how significant this is. Sharing the gospel with a close family member is hard for a number of reasons. First, they know you better than anyone else. You know, there's always a sense you may not have the credibility to talk about spiritual things because they know all the dumb stuff you've done. You know, and they're like, you're telling me, aren't you the person that did X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I'm listening to you. Second, you care for family. You try not to offend them, hopefully. Okay, that's part of the goal here. You're trying not to offend them. They may be offending you, but you're trying not to offend them. 
Third, family stays family. You know, reunions, Christmas, Thanksgiving, not completely avoidable. Family relationships are long-term. So even if you're not getting along, you still got to show up and see that crazy uncle. And everybody has one. For some of your families, it's you. <laughs> they, uh... But Moses sees this the opportunity. And one of the things you need to notice here is that Moses' passion for what God has done for his people eclipses any fear that he might have about sharing the story of God's work with his father-in-law. And what's more, Moses told Jethro, not only about the good things, but also about the hard things. He simply told the story, good and bad, about what God had done. It's one of the first examples we have of evangelism happening in the Bible. It's important to remember that Israel's deliverance was not just to end their slavery. The ultimate goal is for the glory of God to be seen through their deliverance. In other words, Moses' life, the deliverance of Israel, are divinely designed platforms upon which God could be glorified. Moses didn't only relish in the story of the deliverance, he reveled in what it teaches us, what it says about God. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives the following explanation, sort of a commentary on what's happened, Deuteronomy 4. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and asked from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. The theme of Exodus is God. The glory of God, the power of God. It's all about what God has done. Everything that happened to them was designed to say something about God. And as glad as Israel was at having been uh, freed and delivered, it's always important to remember why God has done these things. He rescued them in order to declare his glory. And being available means that you're aware of and ready to be part of God's work on this earth. And not just generally. It's easy to say that I'm available. But specifically, what God is doing in this place, in your church, in your family, in your life. It means that you celebrate God's deliverance from your sins and your hardships and your difficulties and the victories he brings into your life but you do so because of what they say about God. You don't share your story so you look good, because if you're honest, you don't. But about what God has done, how God has worked, how has God shown up in your life? We don't often think about that, but this story says we need to think about that. 
You know, it could have been easy for Moses to make the story about himself. Look what I did. I'm pretty awesome. I let all those people out of Egypt through the water, the whole plagues, the staff, my staff. It would have been easy. But instead, it's all about the amazing things that God has done. Moses seems to clearly know there's a bigger story here. Again, Exodus is not about Israel. It's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Moses. It's all about God. And Moses seizes this opportunity to talk about God. He's available to make much of God's glory, to tell his story. And so here, for the first time, Jethro is embracing faith in God. Jethro confesses the supremacy of God. He sacrificed, he ate a covenantal meal with the elders and other worshipers of God. God hasn't yet established the specifics regarding worship. But we have an early example of what responding to God looks like. As far as I can tell, Jethro is the first convert after the Exodus. Here's an unbelieving Midian priest who heard the story of God's mercy, confessed God's supremacy, and embraced his need for redemption. And it's Moses' testimony of what God has done that makes it possible. He sees that divine moment, and he was available for God's work. Moses was a man who understood the glory of God and God's role in his life. He seemed to understand he was part of a much bigger story. Do you see yourself through that lens? Do you see yourself as part of a much bigger story? Are you able to see a connection between the events of your life and what God is doing? Or are you glad you're just out of Egypt? Are you able to look around and at least try to see what God is doing around you? Or are you so focused on what you have to get done? I love this quote from John Piper from a couple years ago. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. I love that. We have to realize that we have a small part in God's big story, and we need eyes to see that. The Apostle Paul prays for that kind of sight, that kind of vision in Ephesians. He writes in Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. When our eyes get open to the works of God going around on around us all the time, then we start to make ourselves more available to be involved in the work of God. The point being, the faithfulness of God demands the same response from God's people. God's faithfulness leads to our faithfulness, but not only to us being faithful, but should lead to us being available for his work. And that's not going to happen all by itself. For us to be faithful and for us to be available, first we have to become teachable. We have to become teachable, and that's the third blank there in your outline, starting at verse 13. Faithful, available, teachable. It's a great acronym. Just waiting for the, you know. 
Starting at verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So we have an interesting window here into Moses and Jethro's relationship in the heart of Moses as the leader of the Israelite people, we discover Moses needs the wisdom of his father-in-law in order to give him some practical help. Verse 13 says he was hearing cases of the people from morning until evening. You know, as you can imagine, this sort of newly formed, recently delivered nation had issues. People are people. And Moses needs to maintain unity and peace, so he's hearing their cases helping them understand what should be done. And Jethro observes this whole setup, and he asks Moses, what are you doing? He says, this is not good. And Moses says, you know, the people are coming to inquire of God. And that's legitimate, and that's commendable. This newly formed nation doesn't know the heart of God uh, yet, certainly not on practical matters. And Moses is the prophet on whom this mantle of leadership has been divinely placed. And so it's commendable because Moses is working really hard. So hard it really concerns his father-in-law. And Jethro, despite this newfound faith, has important wisdom for Moses. He says it's unwise and <clears throat> excuse me, unsustainable for Moses to carry the burden alone. He needs to prioritize the way that he can be most helpful to the people, realizing he can't do everything. He needs to look for men of character, empower them to serve as sort of assistant judges. And the shared leadership model would reach the unity and the peace, the justice that Moses was looking for. Now Moses could have come up with a ton of reasons for not listening to Jethro. 
You know, and he wouldn't have had to lie. He could have just said, I'm the prophet. I'm the man. God gave it to me. It's my job. You know, I'm the one who talks with God. And yet Moses is able to step back and listen to some really wise advice. You know, I can think of examples in my own life, the lives of others, where I wish there had been a better ability to listen. You know, I recently read a lack of teachability creates a ceiling of growth in your life. Proverbs 12 makes the point stronger. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Over the course of my ministry, I've had the opportunity to interact with lots of different people, and it's remarkable to me that the people that God seems to use in a very powerful way almost always have a teachable heart. They're really wise, but they don't think they are. As a result, they never stop learning, they never stop growing. But I've also seen the opposite. And I've seen people make a wreck of their lives. And it's a tragedy because it could have been prevented, but they wouldn't listen. If only they had listened. Moses gives us a great example here to consider. Here's a man who's met with God, he's controlled plagues, parted the Red Sea, struck rocks and had water come out, empowers victories in battle, but still he listens. He's still teachable. It's no wonder he's used of God. Moses is not only ready for the work of God, he's ready to learn. So what do we do with all this? We can see through the example of Moses, we should be fat disciples. Faithful, available, teachable. But that's just the start. There's more to it than that. In verse 21, Moses is told what kind of leader to look for. So that's the first application today. He's given four leadership requirements. We read in verse 21, Moses is told to look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy. So the first requirement for a leader, a judge, an elder, concerns a man's relationship with God. First and foremost, he should be a man who fears God, a man who holds God in awe and respect, knowing the story is about God and not himself. Chief desire should be to promote the glory of God. Scripture says, Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The first requirement concerns your relationship with God. Second requirement for a leader, a judge, an elder, concerns a man's relationship with other people. He is to be trustworthy, keeps his commitments, characterized by integrity. He's going to be required to resolve disputes between people. So he had to be fair and firm, not led astray. person who doesn't like bribes means whenever necessary, he's willing to give people counsel they don't want to hear and make judgments that they may not agree with. Third requirement for a leader and elder concerns how well he represents the people. Moses wasn't told he could pick his favorites or that he could just pick people from his tribe. He's told he has to pick people from all the people and then organize them and, verse 21, place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and tens. Uh, very practically, this entire nation is going to be organized for spiritual care. Think of it as Israelite community groups. That's basically what they're putting together. 
And the fourth requirement concerns how well he shares leadership with others. There's too much work for one person to do alone. But together they can handle most things. Look at the end of verse 22. He says, so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. Now if this is all starting to sound a little bit like a Presbyterian form of government, that's not an accident. These verses are used as proof texts in many parts of our book of church order. We have pastors, otherwise known as teaching elders, and we have ruling elders, we normally just call them elders, and we have deacons. And they all have different but complementary roles. And each of them is required to be able, trustworthy men who fear God. But the jobs come with a warning. In much of the church today, we see a breakdown of biblical leadership. Some churches exercise too little, and some churches exercise too much. Some churches have abdicated any spiritual discipline, while others have crossed over into the realm of spiritual abuse. So how do we keep those errors from happening? Well, that brings us to our second application uh, for the day, and that's four pastoral concerns. First, we have to be aware of a small view of God and a big view of ourselves. I think one of the reasons Moses responds the way he does is because of his understanding of God and his understanding of himself. He knew what God was like, and I think that gives him clarity as to where he really belongs, where he really fits his own place in the world. That's what the gospel does. By coming back to the simple message of Ephesians 2, for grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The antidote for a self-focus is to have a God focus, to look Godward. Our doctrine actually requires this. In the preface to the book of church order, we read this statement. Jesus, the mediator, the sole priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church, contains in himself by way of eminency all the offices in his church, and has many of their names attributed to him in the scriptures. He is apostle, teacher, pastor, minister, bishop, and the only lawgiver in Zion. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws under the edification and establishment of his kingdom. Since the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven, he is present with the church by his word and spirit, and the benefits of all his offices are effectually applied by the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of theological language to say that Jesus is not just the Lord and Savior of your life, but he is the king and head of the church. We cannot afford to have a small view of Jesus. Second, we have to beware of editing brokenness out of our life. You know, I love the fact that when Moses is telling the story to Jethro, it says in verse 8, you know, he talks about all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and then it says, and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. He didn't present a picture of their journey as though it was just, you know, a raving success. And neither should we. People who are enamored with God's grace view their past through the lens of God's deliverance. They don't glory in the past, but they don't deny it either. Brokenness and failure are not the whole story. 
but they're still an important part of the story. Beware of trying to edit the brokenness out of your life. Third, we have to beware when the work becomes about me. I think of some of the nasty issues I've had to deal with in ministry and some of the casualties I've seen along the way. There's a consistent theme. Somewhere along the line, God's work became my work. It happens easily and subtly. And just more than anything, including uh, ministry and leadership, can develop into a mindset that it's all about me. And biblically, it is never all about you. It is always all about Jesus. And fourth, we have to beware of an absence of counsel. Moses is well served, and so are we, with good friends who give us helpful and direct counsel. (coughs) You ought to have some people in your life who are willing to speak honest words with you. You ought to have some older people in your life who can help you by using their history as a context for your growth. And if no one has shared any helpful counsel with you recently, start asking. Ask people for advice. Ask them, what do you think? How should I handle this? First Thessalonians chapter 5 gives us this counsel. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. It's talking about the leaders. And one of their jobs is to counsel you and admonish you. And maybe tell you things you don't want to hear. And our text tells us today, verse 23, you'll be able to endure and these people will go to their place in peace. Final thoughts. As you know, we've recently lost one of those able, trustworthy men who fear God. We had a remarkable memorial service for Rick Behrens on Friday. And I can testify that Rick was faithful and available and teachable. And I can testify that Rick wore his faith freely around others because a dozen or so folks from IBM told me that he was very comfortable with that. But most of all, I can testify that Rick had a big view of God and a small view of himself. In Dave Doris' homily, he said, I know if Rick were able to talk to us today, he would say, please tell me that you didn't talk all about me but that you talked about Jesus. And it was pretty remarkable. I think every speaker mentioned Christ. I think every speaker had heard at one time or another Rick talk about Christ. Yesterday, Ligon Duncan wrote on his Facebook page, we are not in charge of how God uses our faithfulness. No, we're not. But I can testify that God used Rick's faithfulness. And I can testify because of his life and because of his testimony and because of his faithfulness, there are many people in the world today who can now say, now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close and we'll get ready for communion.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Lord, thank you for the gospel of grace that effectively saves sinners and has saved many of us. There are many prodigals here. There's many Jethro's here. And we pray for more. Enable us, as we minister to them, to be faithful, available, and teachable. Enable us to have a big view of Christ and a small view of ourselves. And as we pray, enable us, O Lord, to remember that what we have to offer to the world is nothing less, nothing more, nothing else than Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church. Father, this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.